All right, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. We are starting our hymnology uh, series, which will take us to the beginning of February. We are starting that today. Um, and uh, before we get going, let's have a brief word of prayer, and then we'll begin to look at our first hymn tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, look at your word from a, just a slightly different perspective, Lord, that through music um, and our brothers and sisters who have written songs so long ago, uh, many of them rich with uh, the, the wonders of your word and the gospel, songs that call us to repentance, songs that call us to faith, songs that call us to just to adore our Savior. And so, Lord, uh, I pray that you would just bless this time now. May you be glorified. May your church be encouraged. <clears throat> May those who listen to this later uh, receive the same blessings that we receive tonight uh, from uh, studying this particular hymn. We do all this for your glory, and we pray your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, um, I know we announced it a while ago, but hymnology, it is the study of hymns. It is the study of the songs that we sing as Christians. And before we look at our first hymn tonight, there's uh, several reasons that just come off the top of my head of why uh, studying hymnology is so important, okay? Number one, there, there are songs that we sing over and over again, and a lot of times we just happen to sing the words and not really reflect on them because they become second nature to us. And so studying the song allows us to slow down and look at the words it allows us to see what scriptures they come from and really get the most out of it. It's, it's, uh, it's like when you read your Bible daily and you read through fast, and, or you can take time to slow down and study and, and uh, milk everything for all that it's worth and get the most nourishment out of it. And so hymnology allows us to do that as we take the time to look at individual hymns more in depth. <clears throat> Number two, um, hymnology is important because it ties us to our Christian ancestry right? The, um, sometimes we get so isolated in our individual Christian church that we forget that there is larger, uh, larger church um, at work in the world now, but not just now, but in past history. And so our brothers and sisters have been singing some of these songs for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so this connects us not just to the church now, but to the church in the past. Brothers and sisters who are alive with the Lord in heaven, and they are awaiting a return to this world to live in a physical body, just like we're awaiting a resurrection at some point. And uh, singing these songs ties us to Christianity and to our brothers and sisters <clears throat> excuse me, at large. Now, there may be any number of other reasons why hymnology is important. It, uh, it nourishes our faith, and uh, it helps us to learn the songs just a little bit better so that we can sing them a little bit stronger. But I just wanted to throw those quick reasons out there of why we are doing this. This is the first time we've ever taught anything like this. In fact, I've been pastoring uh, since 1996, and I've never done one lesson on hymnology. I've made references to songs and sermons and things like that, but I've never done a series devoted to studying songs and seeing what they have to say, okay? So, <clears throat> excuse me, tonight we are going to look at our first hymn, which is All Creatures of Our God and King. You should have received uh, just a brief handout that has the words on there, um, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but I at least wanted to make sure that you did get that. So our first hymn starts with a man named Giovanni Bernardon, okay? I'm not Italian, but I hope I said that right, and that sounded pretty close to me. If not, I, I fooled everyone, okay? He was born in 1182, a long, long time ago, in Assisi, Italy, and he died in 1226 at the young age of 44, Right, that's very young. Uh, some of you are not yet quite in your 40s, and some of us are in our early 50s. Um, I myself am 50, so when I think of someone dying at 44, that is a very young age to die. Okay, <clears throat> Giovanni was born to a wealthy family, and he served as a soldier before deciding to become a Catholic monk. At one point during his military service, he was captured during a battle, and he was imprisoned. And because he came from a wealthy family and dressed better than other soldiers, a ransom was demanded for his release, and he actually spent a year imprisoned waiting for his father to, ransom, uh, to pay the ransom money. <clears throat> After his release, he supposedly heard Christ, and I use that word on purpose, supposedly, okay? He supposedly heard Christ speak to him, in which Christ commanded him to rebuild 
and repair the church. And he says Christ called him to live in a life of poverty. But prior to this experience, Giovanni had lived a life of luxury um, because he came from a wealthy family. His father was a cloth merchant who owned property in Assisi. And so Giovanni was accustomed to indulging in food and in drink and lavish parties. It is even noticed that Giovanni was a vain man. Okay, history records that, and had he been around during the age of social media, I'm sure he would have had a lot of pictures on his phone and on Instagram back then, but it didn't exist. Okay, Giovanni was quite an athletic person as well. He was skilled in wrestling, archery, and horse riding. So not only um, extravagant in the way of living, but he was very uh, savvy when it came to physical activities. And he even had dreams of becoming a knight, which a knight would have been like a superhero of the day if you were one. All right? But this, post, this post-war experience in which he supposedly heard Christ speak to him, it changed him from that day forward. Now, please understand that when I'm giving biographical background and sketches about the person or the psalm that we're talking about or the hymn, <clears throat> I want you to understand that I'm not necessarily validating their experiences or agreeing with them. Okay? Just because I mentioned this is what happened doesn't mean I agree with the experience or am validating validating it. I'm just reporting what is recorded. So what I'm saying is whether or not Christ spoke to him, that is a matter of debate. Uh, But that is what he claims changed his outlook in life. He became a monk at the age of 25, and Giovanni took the name St. Francis of Assisi. Now that name might be a little bit more familiar to you. Has anyone ever heard that name other than Pastor Steve? All right, <laughs> all right, just a few of you. All right, fantastic. Um, so it might be a name that you recognize, and it's okay if you don't. Um, and I'm, I think there should be a picture of Saint uh, CC up there. Um, Yep, that is him right there. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what he looked like, but it was a picture that uh, was pulled off the internet. So he reports that Christ called him to a life of poverty. So he, from that point forward, refused to live in wealth. He lived in poverty from then on. And he spent much of his time traveling, spent much of his time preaching, helping the poor. He nursed lepers back to health. And so he spent time doing this and taking care of those that were needy. And he began preaching around his hometown, the city of Assisi, and he had 12 followers that accompanied him. St. Francis is uh, known for his love for animals and his, um, and his love for nature. Hey, Christian, can, can you do me a favor? Would you mind switching copies with me? I think I gave uh, the wrong copy to you, and um, I think I need the copy that you have. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. So, St. Francis of Assisi, okay? Um, He is recognized, uh, again, for, let me see, that is it. Here you go. You can have that one. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. All right? So, at age 28, um, after becoming a monk, he started the the Franciscan Order of Friars, and he began to gain gain a large following of people who wanted to imitate his way of poverty and follow his teachings. And at this point, he sounds like a normal convert, um, other than, you know, he thought he heard Christ speak to him. He wants to follow Christ. He wants to be devoted to him. He wants to not be attached to the things of the world, and uh, he's developing a following and teaching the things of Scripture. St. Francis, he's also known for his love for animals. I bring this up because this will, uh, you'll kind of get a feel for where, uh, he, what he thinks about nature when it comes to the song that we learned today. But he had a love for animals and nature. He eventually became known as the patron saint of nature or ecology, all right, the way different systems operate in nature. A patron saint, if you don't know what a patron saint is, <coughs> excuse me, it is one who is regarded a person who is regarded as a representative for a particular event, a particular place, or a particular activity. In this case, it's not necessarily an event or a place or an activity, but something known as ecology or nature. All right? So he became one who would stand as a representative for this in Christian tradition, or at least in Catholic tradition. Okay? And so you'll probably see a picture up top there with uh, St. Francis and uh, around some animals. Um, if you don't know, it looks like Jabba the Hutt got him and bronzed him like he did Han Solo, if you've ever seen the Star Wars movies. But that's what that reminded me of, okay? Um, and if you look up his uh, picture on the internet and just look for pictures of St. Francis of Assisi, you'll often find pictures of him with animals around him just because that is what he is regarded as. Now, there's even an odd account of St. Francis of Assisi preaching a sermon to birds, 
Okay, and uh, the more you read about this guy, the more weird stories pop up around this guy. Um, he saw them gathered in a tree, and he saw the birds, and he began to preach to them. And if any of your pastors are ever found doing that, uh, just call the local paddy wagon, okay? Here's what he said, and this is a, just a shortened version of this sermon. My little sisters, he calls the birds, many are the bonds which unite us to God. And your duty is to praise him everywhere and always because he has let you free to fly wherever you will. And he has given you a double and a threefold covering and the beautiful plumage that you wear, referring to their feathers. Praise him likewise for the food he provides for you with your, uh, without your working for it. Praise him for the songs he has taught you, for your numbers that he is blessing and has multiplied, for your species which he has preserved in the ark of olden times, and for the realm of the air he has reserved for you. And so the sermon goes on a little bit longer, but he's, he's calling them to exalt in God and to praise God for how he's made them and for how he's preserved them and how he feeds them. And so the, the sermon continues on for a bit, but I thought I'd give you just a view into how St. Francis of Assisi lived and thought. And this is why, again, he became known as the patron saint of uh, nature or ecology. Now, supposedly, <clears throat> during this preaching of the sermon, the birds as he's talking, stretched out their necks and stretched out their wings and they looked at him with their beaks open as if they were in awe of what he was talking about. Now, to me, this sounds more like legend and folklore rather than actual history or something like a biblical miracle. And that's why I uh, reserve the right to be speculative about these situations. But um, they were in all of this mini sermon, supposedly. And afterwards, he claims that they, after the sermon was over, that they flew off in the shape of a cross, right? That beautiful if that happened, right? But it just seems a little bit too fanciful for me. Now, just for the record, again, if you ever come to my house and you see me preaching to cats, right? Kitties, praise the Lord for your furry little tails, right? And the fact that uh, no coyote has eaten you today. If, if you ever see me preaching that or you come down here and you see Steve talking to the birds in our, in our tree, again, something is seriously awry there, all right? You, you should be concerned. You might want to look for a different church. Now, <clears throat> again, if I come telling you experiential stories like this, um, just know that I'm not feeling well if something happened like that, all right? But once again, you can see why he was designated as the patron saint of environment, nature, or ecology. Now, I want to talk um, just a little bit about <clears throat> some of the things that he's known for saying, okay? So we just gave a brief sketch of his, of his life and background, and you're welcome to uh, dig a little further and read uh, biographies about him. There's a lot of information out there about him, but of course, we can't go over everything. So I want to talk next about some of the things that he said he said some things that were intriguing, some things that were helpful, and uh, some things we're not even quite sure if he said. One of the things he said, you'll see it up on the screen, he says, all the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle. All right? that's, that's a pretty wise observation. And it's a helpful reminder, I think, that darkness does not overcome light, no matter how small the light is, whether that be the light of Christ or whether that be the light of Christians. That statement seems to take its cues, and maybe his thinking was coming from Matthew 5.14, um, which says that we are the light of the world, all right, and that a city and a hill cannot be hidden. It also reminds me of what Jesus says in John chapter 12, where our Lord says that he has come into the world as light, and so wh whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. And so this saying that all darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle seems to hint at the fact that St. Francis understood that the church is light, the Christians are light, as Christ is light too. And, and nothing can extinguish that light, no matter how much darkness there is. He also said this. I, f I found this rather intriguing and, and helpful. He says, I have been all things unholy. I have been all things unholy. If God can work through me, he can work through anyone. That's a solid assessment of one's own sin nature. St. Francis knew his depravity, and he seems to echo Paul's words where Paul says that he was the chief of sinners or the foremost sinner. He seems to be drawing attention to truths found in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul says, if anyone 
cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, meaning cleaning yourself from sinful things, that that person will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy and useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so as Christians, that's what uh, Paul calls us to do, to abstain from sin, set ourselves apart from sin, to be holy, to be sanctified so that God may use us for his good work. And that seems to be some of what St. Francis is echoing here when he says, I have been all things unholy, but if God can work through me, he can work through anyone. And we we know that he tried to at least live a godly life. And so I think we can let these words from Scripture and St. Francis encourage us and remind us that we got to lay aside sin We need to walk in holiness so that the Lord will work in and through us to bring the gospel to the world. St. Francis also said, he said, true progress, true progress quietly and persistently moves along without notice. True progress quietly and persistently moves along without notice. I thought that was a helpful statement for us who live in a world that's dominated by entertainment and flash and pizzazz. Because that mindset of, of flash and, and ex- explosion, if you will, uh, things that are uh, of, of great notice, it seems to infiltrate the church. And, uh, and we can be tempted to think at times that true change only comes in spectacular mountaintop experiences. And history shows something quite different. All right? History shows that the Lord has been building his church ever so slowly over the past 2,000 years through ordinary Christians like you and me, okay? Through mediocre pastors like me and Steve. We're just, and I don't mean terrible, I mean, we're we're average guys, right? Um, We don't don't have worldwide podcasts. We don't have uh, many people endorsing us and that kind of stuff, and that's okay. We're just normal, everyday pastors who preach everyday average sermons, And we see that that's really how God has built the church around the world for the past 2,000 years. Most pastors aren't recorded in the annals of church history, are they? They don't have their names recorded. They're not getting quoted by everybody and having memes put on them on the internet and little video clips here and there. It's just everyday, normal, small growth here or there, which echoes what St. Francis says, that true progress quietly and persistently moves along without notice. And here we are 2,000 years And God's church is massive across the world and massive across time. And it seems to go on without much fanfare. There's no local media news coverage uh, covering how God's church is growing across the world. It just doesn't happen. It goes on without much fanfare. So sometimes change is indiscernible, but his kingdom grows and grows. The same is true with our sanctification as we grow in the Lord. Sometimes it doesn't look like we're growing to be like Christ, right? Have you ever looked in the mirror and you're like, you pathetic, wretched sinner, what's wrong with you? Why don't you grow in holiness? Why do you stay in the sins that you're in? And yet, if you look back in two years, five years and ten years, you'll see how far God has taken you. And we see that God does change us over time. But in the moment, it's not easy to see, much like losing weight. You go to the gym one day. I heard someone here just went to the gym, right? You probably don't feel like you lost five pounds, right? Uh, But incremental Uh, movements take place over time. So I think we'd all agree that these statements are are great statements that are helpful. They agree with scripture. They help navigate through life. They're insightful. One of the things that he supposedly said, um, and it can't be proven whether he said it or not, but it is often attributed to St. Francis that he said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That's probably the most famous saying of his that people say is his, but may not be his, okay? Maybe you've heard that statement. Has anybody ever heard heard that statement? Okay, so you do know something of St. Francis if you've heard this statement, or at least something tied to him. I remember the first time I saw this quote. It was on a poster in a youth room at a church in Los Angeles. This was around 2001. Being naive and young, and lacking discernment, I thought this was a rather clever thing to say, okay? It sounds pretty cool, don't it, on the outset? You like, but it's, it's so far off base, okay? Some people would argue that this is a misquote, okay? They claim that what he actually said was, preach the gospel at all times and also use words. 
Neither of those phrases are found in his teachings, okay? Neither, neither. Neither are very helpful statements either. The closest thing that could be attributed to what something that he might have said was that all friars should preach by their deeds, okay? That was something he did say, and that's the closest thing that comes to this misquote. But he spoke that last phrase in order that those who were preaching the gospel and those who were taking the gospel to sinners, he didn't want them to live hypocritical lives. And so he said all fire should preach the gospel by their deeds. He wasn't excluding words or assuming that words wouldn't be spoken. He just didn't want them to live hypocritically. So, <clears throat> again, um, just a little controversy about something that he may or may not have said. Now, uh, as far as that first statement, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, there are many people today that think that we can lead people to Christ just by living holy lives and by living godly examples and, and living a God-fearing life. Let me just kick that to the curb and dismantle that, okay? Living a godly life in and of itself will never bring people to Christ. Why? Because it's not possible for people to know that Christ died and rose again for their justification just by living a holy life. They can't know that. Just like creation tells us something of God, but it doesn't tell us that Jesus died and rose again, right? In order to know that Jesus died and rose again, words have to be used, specifically the word of God. So if anybody ever says, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, you need to remember you cannot preach the gospel unless you use words. And your holy living should adorn the gospel and make it uh, appear attractive, okay, so that you're not a hypocrite. Now, Romans 10.14, just to help you with that further thought, says this. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So whether or not St. Francis Assisi said that original statement is beside the point because Scripture tells us something different. People cannot believe unless they hear, and they uh, cannot hear unless someone speak those words, okay? Gospel words, beautiful words. So he never said it, but nevertheless, we know what Scripture says, okay? Now, this brings me to uh, beyond his sayings. Let's talk a little bit about his stigmata. This is another odd and interesting fact about a guy who wrote an amazing poem in which a song came about. We get into something a little crazy here, all right? Like a good Reformed Christian, I'm, I'm suspicious of Jesus appearing on toasted bread, aren't you? Right? Oh, Jesus, look at it. He appeared in my alphabet soup, right? Um, like a good Reformed Christian, I'm suspicious even about dreams and visions that don't align with Scripture that people say that they have. I don't follow the superstition of, of the Catholic Church in venerating people or kissing relics or artifacts from ancient Christianity. And frankly, I'm also suspicious about St. Francis's stigmata. Um, what, is, what in the world does that mean, stigmata? Well, let's talk about it. <clears throat> in 1224, St. Francis, he went up to Mount Laverna in Italy. All right, I don't know much of his, uh, geography and history, uh, geography in uh, Italy, but he went up to Mount Laverna <clears throat> in order to celebrate a Catholic feast. This feast is called the Feast of, Ass of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary the Feast of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. Now, the word assumption in Latin means to be taken up. Assumption means to be taken up. We might think, oh, you, you made an assumption. You assumed something. Very different way in which we use the word now, okay? Assumption means to be, <coughs> excuse me, to be taken up. And so uh, the Catholic feast celebrates the doctrine that teaches that after Jesus' mother died, that after Mary died, that she was resurrected and glorified and was taken up, assumed up, an assumption, taken up to heaven in both body and soul. And so that's one of the teachings of the Catholic churches. Um, we would say Mary's still dead in a grave awaiting a resurrection. They believe she was already resurrected and taken up, all right? And so he goes up to this mount to celebrate this feast. He's also preparing for another Catholic feast day to come, a holy day. And it's there that he is fasting for 40 days. That's a long time. Right? Remember when we were praying for one of our dear brothers in our church? Fasting one day was really hard. 
I don't know how people fast three, four, five, ten days, much less 40 days like our Savior did. But during this time, he was praying. He's praying how best to serve God, and he's reading the scriptures of Christ's sufferings. He then claims that he had a vision in which, and you'll see another slide, in which this beautiful man angel, that he saw this beautiful man angel affixed to a cross. As he wondered what this vision meant, he began to sense that God wanted him to experience the life of martyrdom. But not physical martyrdom where he would be killed for being a Christian, but rather he would suffer in mind and in heart, in spirit, like a spiritual martyr in which he would suffer. This vision faded away from his sight, and at that point he said that the marks of Christ's crucifixion appeared in his body. And that's what the stigmata is. It is the supposed marks of Christ's crucifixion appearing on one's body, the stigmata. The word stigmata is plural for stigma, and stigma just means marking or branding, marking or branding. And so the stigmata in Catholicism is when someone says that they have miraculously received the marks of Christ or the stigma of Christ's stigmata of Christ's crucifixion. And this is what St. Francis claims he received during this vision while he fasted. It may very well just be that he was very hungry and hallucinating at this point, right? But this is what he claims. And in Catholic tradition, he is the first person to supposedly receive these marks from God. Interestingly enough, though, he spent considerable effort the rest of his life trying to hide these marks from public view. Okay? So this is, this is letting you know just a little bit about this guy, all right, who, who wrote a poem which later became a song. And so if you thought that hymns and the songs that we sing all originated from Reformed theologians or from men or women without controversy or without mystical experiences and they didn't have any bad theology, then please know that a lot of the greatest songs that Christians have sung worldwide for hundreds of years come from a wide variety of authors and backgrounds. In fact, many songs that we sing, that Christians sing, are taken from psalms uh, that are written by a guy who murdered and a guy who committed adultery. And we know him as King David. And I think there's, there's oftentimes in Christianity a false expectation put upon the songs that we sing in church. We think that they all have to come from people who have spotless backgrounds. Or we think that they have to come from people who have their theology 100% in agreement with ours. And that just <clears throat> isn't the case. These people have flaws uh, 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 spiritually. They have flaws um, in, in their religious thinking and in their religious practices. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be discerning. Right? I'm only highlighting the fact that some of the most beloved and treasured hymns, songs that have blessed the church and are sung by some of the most staunch Reformed people, these songs come from people with less than spectacular backgrounds or theology. So while we believe that God used visions and dreams long ago, like Hebrews tells us, God spoke at many times and in many ways long ago, but today he has spoken to us by his son. Okay, So while we believe that God did speak in visions and dreams, like Hebrews tells us, we believe that those, see, those things ceased and that in these last days he speaks to us through Christ and by his apostles in the New Testament, his messengers. Okay, Now, <clears throat> excuse me, let's talk a little bit about his song. We've looked at his sayings. We've looked at his stigmata. Again, a really odd situation there. And now we're going to talk about his song. With some of the background given, let's look at this hymn, all right? Again, this, the song that we sing, All Creatures of Our God and King, it was actually a poem before it was a song, all right? About a year before St. Francis' death, he was ill. He was losing his sight, and he composed a poem called The Canticle of the Sun, the Canticle of the Sun. And the word should be up on the screen for you. It's rather long, but I'm going to read it to you because we don't often read poetry in our church. Um, but let's read this, and you don't have to read it out loud. Just follow along. This is what St. Saint, Saint Francis Assisi wrote, uh, of Assisi wrote a year before he died while he was ill and losing his sight at the young age of 44, 43. The, song, the, the poem says, Most High, 
all-powerful good Lord. Yours are the praises, the glory, the honor, and all the blessings. To you alone, most high, do they belong. And no man is worthy to mention your name. Praise be to you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially brother son, who is the day and through whom you give us light. And he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor. And he bears a likeness to you, most high one. Praised be you, my Lord, through sister moon and the stars. In heaven you form them clear and precious and beautiful. Praised be you, my Lord, through brother wind and through the air, cloudy and serene, and every kind of weather through which you have given sustenance to your creatures. Praised be you, my Lord, through sister water, which is very useful and humble and precious and chaste. Praised be you, my Lord, through brother fire, through whom you light the night. <clears throat> and he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong. Praised be you, my Lord, through sister mother earth, who sustains us and governs us and who produces varied fruits with colorful flowers and herbs. Praised be you, my Lord, through those who give pardon of, for your love and bear infirmity and tribulation. Blessed are those who endure in peace, for by you, most high, they shall be crowned. Praise be you, my Lord, through our sister bodily death, from whom no living man can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin. Blessed are those whom death will find in your most holy will, for the second death shall do them no harm. Praise and bless my Lord and give thanks and serve him with great humility. Amen. Now it's important to remember that as we read poetry, that this is what poetry is. Poetry uses different kinds of flowery and colorful language to express truth. <clears throat> it is not literally true that the sun is our brother and that the moon is our sister, correct? St. Francis, though, because of his love for nature, he, he saw all of creation, though, as we are related in some sense. That sense is that we are all creations of God. And so you have to remember that it's in that sense that he's using it. He doesn't have this theology that thinks that we're physically related in, in, in humanity or anything like that, okay? Figurative words to denote that we are all part of God's creation. Again, you, also, you have to also understand that this poetry comes from St. Francis's love for nature and God's good creation, all right? So there's a background that, that, sh that sheds some light on why he writes like this. St. Francis loved nature. He loved music. He wrote over 60 songs for use in the monastery. That's a lot of songs to write. But it, it, it was this writing right here, this canticle that would be paraphrased many centuries later and used as the hymn that we sing. There's a guy named William Draper. Remember, uh, St. Francis lived um, in, the, in the 1100s and early 1200s. <clears throat> Well, fast forward to the early 1900s, okay? William Draper, he's a rector, a pastor in England. <clears throat> a rector is basically a priest with oversight of a local church, okay? He paraphrased this poem in English, and he used a very old tune for the music. The tune was written in 1623, and it's a German tune, and... Lord, forgive me if I mispronounce it, and, and hopefully those that speak German in our church won't hold it against me. But the tune is called Last uns in Fruen Herzlich Ser. Here's, I hope that's as close as I can get it. I couldn't find anybody to pronounce it for me. But it means this. It means, let us rejoice most heartily. Let us rejoice most heartily. And there's, there's actually a few hymns, if you go through and look in hymn books, that are set to this same tune which means there's a couple of songs that are going to sound just like all creatures of our God and King, just with different words, okay? They're going to sound identical, but they're not. So at this time, we're going to do something that we don't normally do in our services or in our lesson times, but I want to play a couple versions of the songs uh, for you, okay? Um, so this class is actually going to consist of listening <clears throat> to music and learning about hymns. And so uh, the first one I want you to listen to, it's... Uh, it's a traditional version, and it's followed 
by a version that we sing in, a church, in our church. All right? And then we'll discuss the theology of the song a little bit, and then we will sing the song together and close out the song, our, our time together in worship. So I want you to listen to this version. It's a very traditional version. Um, it's uh, uh, this song that we're about to listen to. I want you to notice <clears throat> that it's written in what musicians call 3-2 timing. All right? It's not a timing that we use in any of the songs that we sing at church. And so as you're listening and singing along your head, you might feel like you want to jump ahead too soon, or you might want to feel like you might feel like you're falling behind because this timing is a little bit odd. Uh, it even feels weird to those of us that were our musicians. It's just not a common timing. Um, what does that mean for us? A song written in 3-2 is going to take on this count. Three beats per measure. One, two, three. One, two, three, and it's going to keep counting, one, two, three. And so, but the way that it's written, it's going to feel a little off. It's not going to feel so uh, easy to count just like that. So Christian's going to cue up the music. This is uh, All Creatures of Our God and King by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. So let's listen. Maybe Christian, maybe about uh, two minutes in, we'll uh, just fade it out, and we'll go to the next song, okay? So listen to this song. Christian, just fade that out, or cut it off abruptly, all right, whichever one works. So that, uh, you can tell, is a little more traditional. It requires a pretty big choir if you're going to pull off that kind of sound. We don't have that kind of operation here at church. Of course, we have a, a band instead, and so what you're going to listen to next is a more modern version. And again, Christian, just a couple verses to go through. We don't have to listen to the whole thing. But this, this version is going to be written in 4-4 four, four timing. It'll carry the beat. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. It's going to feel a little more normal for most of us, a little more natural. Four beats per measure, and that's how that song is counted out. This is the version of the song that we sing in our church, and we'll sing at the end of service. So Christian, brother, please cue that up. For fading that out. I appreciate that. So in our worship services, when we use this song, uh, and we're going to sing it actually this Sunday in our church service, we use this as a call to worship, okay? A call to worship is just that. It's a call or a summoning for us to worship and adore our creator. It's, an import, it's important that when we initial, initially gather on Sunday, that we all recognize that we are assembling before a holy God, our maker, and that's what starts off each and every one of our worship services, a call to worship. After that, we enter a song in which we confess our sin. Because as we stand before a holy God, we must recognize we are sinners. Which takes us into a third song that points us to the gospel and shows us how Christ saves us sinners who stand before our maker. And then after greeting, we sing a song of celebration in which we celebrate what the Lord has done for us. And that is an order of worship that our services follow almost exclusively as those songs center around the scripture. And so just in case you were wondering what we do, we don't just randomly pick songs. That's how we pick songs. And these songs serve to get our attention to God in the right way. And we start off generally with a call to worship, which we use this song for. We are lowly creatures standing before a great creator. Now, this song, the poem that uh, St. Francis wrote, if you look at Psalm 148, I think you'll find that this is where he got his inspiration for this song. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 8, look at what it says. And I'll have the scripture on the screen for you. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly armies. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He set them in position forever and ever and gave them an order that they will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, all sea monsters and ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and cloud, stormy wind that executes his command. And when you read this psalm, you see that all non-human beings 
are to cre- uh, that are created. Not all human entities are to give glory and praise and adoration to our mutual creator. When juxtaposed, when you take this psalm and put it next to the poem that St. Francis wrote, you can see that they, they both mention the sun, moon, and stars and the winds. And if you continue to read Psalm 148, you'll see that in verses 10 through 13, that all the people of the earth are called to give glory and praise to God. No one is exempt from praising God according to Psalm 148. This is what this poem and song are meant to do. It calls us to worship God because that's what God calls us to do in his word. No one is exempt. There is no excuse not to praise God. If you are made, then you are to praise your maker. It's so vital that we get this. God is due worship. He's entitled to it, and we are obligated to give it. So do not be counted amongst those who refuse to worship and to give God praise through song. When we assemble on Sunday mornings, we must worship him. In light of what our Savior Jesus Christ has done for us and what he has done to redeem us, we have all the more reason to praise God. And as you read Psalm 148, you can clearly see that St. Francis's Canticle of the Sun, his poem, it is informed by this text. And you can see how William Draper, right, the guy who would later turn it into a song, right, how he would compose the lyrics, the use of scripture, and this canticle. And so here, the song that we are about to sing in a little bit, we have a case of where the song was composed from a poem that was inspired and informed by the scripture. Remember that Draper, William Draper, who, who composed the song later, he is paraphrasing St. Francis's poem. It's not word for word, but there are similarities between that and the scripture. Okay? And looking into the lyrics of the song that we just heard, um, you, uh, you will find that there are some versions of the song that have four verses, some that have five, and on your paper, there's actually 11 verses to William Draper's song, okay? But in most hymnals, you'll see four or five verses. I'm only going to cover the three that we sing at our church because it would take forever to go through all 11. So let me read the first two verses that we just heard. You'll see them on the slide. Verse 1 says, All creatures of our God and King... That's everyone, every creature. Lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise him, alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden beam. Thou silver moon with softer gleam. Oh, praise him, oh, praise him. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Now remember, this is Draper's paraphrase of St. Francis. He says in verse two, thou rushing wind that art so strong. Ye clouds that sail in heaven along. Oh, praise him, alleluia. Thou rising moon with praise rejoice. Ye lights of evening, find a voice. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Now, hopefully you'll, you'll notice before we move any further the similarities, but also some differences in how William Draper rephrased St. Francis's poem. The similarities we see are that in, uh, that in the scripture, in the poem, and in the song, We see the mention of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the wind, right? Those are in all three, St. Francis's poem, William Draper's song, and in scripture. And they're all summoned to give God glory. All of creation is to praise God. The heavens indeed declare the glory of God. But we see some differences. In the poem, St. Francis uses terms like brother and sister to refer to creation. Remember, we talked about that, okay? He uses those terms figuratively figuratively to mean that we are all part of God's creation. In that sense, we are all related. In today's world, I wouldn't use those words because there are some people that want to level all of creation out into one flat plane, and they don't want to recognize the dignity that God has given mankind and that he has made us in his image. And we are very different from the rest of creation. We are the crown of God's creation and that he made us in his image. Animals and mountains and birds and clouds, they are not made in the image of God. They do declare his glory, but not made in his image. And so while I wouldn't use words like brother and sister to refer to creation, I actually still don't have a problem with the poem and how he uses these terms figuratively because I know what context it's coming from. Okay? Poetry is, again, very different kind of language. we got to understand that. But I personally like how William Draper rephrased the, instead of uh, brother son, he said burning son. 
Instead of sister moon, he said silver moon in a rushing wind. And so he used some adjectives to describe it. And it removes any ambiguity that in today's world uh, uh, that humans and sun and moon and wind are all essentially the same when we are not. And we are all of God's creation. Are we all of God's creation? Yes, but only mankind is endowed with the image of God. So the song continues in verse 3. It says, let all creation, I'm sorry, let all things their creator bless and worship him in humbleness. Oh, praise him, alleluia. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise him, alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. As we examine the last verse, right, we see that the first two verses are focused on creation. The the last verse that we sing calls uh, for us to bless the creator just as the psalm does. The song then turns its focus to the triune nature of God, that our God is one in essence, but he's also three in a different way. One in essence, but three in person. That is not a contradiction by any means. A contradiction would be to say that God is only one person, but God is only three persons. That's a contradiction because you're saying that, they're, that A and not A are equal when they're not. Okay, One person cannot be three persons, but you can be one in essence. That's one kind of one, and then three in a different way, Okay, and that is in person. And so when we say that God is one, we mean his, his nature, his attributes, that God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's everywhere present, he's loving, he's kind, he's patient. Those attributes are in every single person of the Godhead so that each person possesses the fullness of God, okay? All are omnipotent, eternal, omniscient, and holy. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwells, Scripture says, and the same is true for the Holy Spirit. All complain, uh, I'm sorry, all contain complete deity, complete God, all right? Yet they are three persons. And you'll see a slide on the screen, um, and this is one of the ways that Christians have often summarized the Trinity, We would say that the Father is God. In the center, you'll see God and the word Father connecting to that. The Father is God. You see that the Son is God. And you see the Spirit is God, right? Because they are all one in essence. But the three persons are different. So that the Father is not the Son and the Father is not the Spirit. They are different persons. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, Okay, so three distinct persons of the Godhead, but one essence. And that's what we mean by Trinity, okay? Uh, and so, uh, anyway, there's a lot of other things that we could say about that. Uh, we don't have time to go through all that. But this song calls us to adore our creator who is three in person, okay? And the song emphasizes one of the core doctrines of Christianity, which makes it a very important song. Because if you do not believe in this doctrine, then you do not believe in the God of the Bible, and thus you are not a Christian. Okay? Deuteronomy 6 says this. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you are walking along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. So the Lord our God is one. Deuteronomy 6 expresses the oneness of God. We have but one God. We do not worship three gods or three parts of God. He is one. And yet scripture gives us a more complete understanding of God. Again, while God is one in a particular way, he's three in a different way. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says this, yet for, the, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, <clears throat> Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's very important that you get the last part of that. We see there's one God, the Father, who created all things and thus we exist for him. But then it goes to speak of Christ. And it speaks of Christ with the attributes of the creator. We exist through Christ. But it was the Father who made all things. We exist through Christ. So so in this scripture, there are two categories of existence. All things that exist eternally 
and all things that began to exist or came into existence. All things that have always existed and all things that came into being. Two categories only, and Jesus is assigned into the category of non-created entities, which makes him God. Very important that you see that. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2, listen to what Scripture says about the Spirit. It says, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, right? Who, who knows my thoughts except my own spirit, which is in that person? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit knows everything that God knows, which makes him omniscient. That is an attribute of God, making him God. So once again, we see that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, according to Scripture, are all 100% deity, yet there is a oneness and a threeness about them. The oneness is a totally different category than the threeness of them. The oneness has to do with their attributes and essence. The threeness has to do with their persons. But they are all equal in essence. Therefore, there is but one God, and he exists in three persons, the Godhead. Now, there's a lot of mystery in that. Much that we can't comprehend, but much that we can. In regards to salvation... Let me end with this. Scripture teaches that it is God who is our salvation. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. It is the Father who elects us to salvation. It is the Son who dies and rises again to atone for our sins and to provide justification for us. And it is the Spirit who renews our hearts and regenerates our hearts and brings the Word of God to us and gives us a new birth so that we can repent and believe that Jesus is the Savior. Father, Son, and Spirit, all three persons working in unity, working in harmony to bring about our salvation so that we may praise our God as lowly creatures. And so out of all created things, those who are saved, those who are believers, should have the highest reason to give praise to our Creator and Savior. And that is the importance of this hymn that we sing. Again, we just sing three out of the 11 verses <clears throat> For the full version of the song, I direct you to the sheet that you were handed. On the other side, you'll see uh, the printed music that has that weird timing that we heard in that first version. That's just for your reference to look at. I would encourage you to dig a little deeper into St. Francis and check him out. Maybe read it a little bit more on the song. But at this time, that will conclude our lesson. And we're going to sing this song together. Okay? The words should be up on the screen, God willing. If not, you have them on your paper. And... Um, I forgot uh, to get a copy of that, but uh, we will sing the verses that I quoted in the, in, the, in the lesson tonight. We will sing the part that starts with all creatures of our God and King, the verse that starts with thou rushing wind that art so strong, and the verse that starts with let all things their creator bless. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me. Let me pray, and then we'll sing our, this song and close out our time together. Heavenly Father, we 